Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Apurva Desai. And I'm your co-host, Megan Bull. Megan, who do we have with us today? Well, that's a good question, Apurva. We have a kind of unique interview situation going on. Rather than one or two guests, we have four. Well, okay. Well, let's meet them. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So um, I'll start. My name is uh, Rachel. I was in the MMASC uh, Global Health Studies program last year. Hi, my name is Alyssa. Um, I was also in the Global Health Studies or Global Health Systems program as well. My name is Vishva, and I was also part of, of the Global Health Systems program last year. My name is Kathy, and like everyone else, we're all in the same program with the Global Health Systems. Well, thank you so much for being here. To start us off, could you maybe tell us a bit about your program? Because I believe you guys are the first of your program to be on the show this week. Yeah, so um, a little bit about our program. It's a one-year course-based master's at Western. Um, In our year, it was known as the MMASC, or the Master's of Management of Applied Science in Global Health Systems. But now I believe it's being known as a Master's of Health Science. Um, Predominantly, we take courses on global health, so things like epidemiology. Uh, We also take some business courses to learn about that side of global health. Um, And we really focus on developing a systems thinking approach to um, health systems and health problems. Um, And a cool part of our practicum or our program is our practicum experience, which in which we spend about two months in Uganda with a three two to three week field school. And there we really get to see that global health approach by working in the setting itself. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, what about that uh, practicum experience? Would you be able to tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so we, the four of us, were specifically placed at the Embarara Regional Referral Hospital. So it's um, on the in the south area of Uganda, pretty close to Tanzania. Uh, And there we worked with the Joint Clinical Research Center. So our research mainly focused on maternal and nutritional health. The main issue uh, that we were tasked to face was investigating um, obstructed labor and some of the root causes of that. Uh, And upon doing some more research, we found that nutrition was a big factor. So that's kind of the direction that we decided to take our research in for the summer. That sounds really interesting. Um... I've not heard of a lot of Western programs generally that um, have a practicum-based component to them. So I'm curious, and this might be taking a step back, but what's the roadmap to the practicum? Like, what do you have to do, um, I guess, to prepare and get yourself ready to do this type of research? We started with normal, like, course-based um, courses, um, but sure enough, we had a milestone, like, sessions um, all broken out throughout the program where we got to meet individuals from previous years or individuals living in Uganda who had um, ties to the research organizations we'd be working with. So we got to communicate with them and ask them questions and learn about stuff that way. Um, In addition to that, other milestone events covered more cultural competencies and other ways that we could prepare ourselves to live in Uganda for the time that we did. If I can do a quick follow-up, what types of cultural competencies did you have to prepare yourselves for in Uganda? Um, I'm really curious about that. 
I think a big part of it was recognizing our privilege because there's a lot of stereotypes surrounding Africa that we have here in the global north, which is a generalized term for uh, what we used to call, I guess, more developed countries. And then before that, the term was first world country. So we kind of shifted away from those vocabularies um, to make it a little bit less discriminatory so uh in the global north we have like these misconceptions about the global south in regions like africa and a huge part of our milestones and seminars following up to that is to make sure that we don't go into this experience with these stereotypes where we're infantilizing um people in africa where we're going in with like a superior mindset we're trying to we go into a foreign country and how we should interact in this foreign environment because we're very much going into this as learners to share our thoughts and to listen to like our counterparts in uganda as well yeah i'll just hop on to that as well and, and add to kathy's point um i think one aspect of our cultural competence training really focused on avoiding helicopter research um, and just coming in to a country for a certain period of time uh, leaving with your research and then not really contributing uh, to the healthcare there uh, so they really emphasize the importance of community-based research and participatory research, where we're actually engaging the community in the research uh, from the research question inception all the way to interpreting your results um, and then developing the intervention as well. And just making sure that you are involving the community throughout to make sure that it's actually feasible and that whatever you're coming up with for an intervention is sustainable long-term. Just so like Kathy said, we're not just coming in for our own purposes and leaving with the research. Adding on to that a little bit, we also had courses that really focused on us learning about, you know, the history of Africa or Uganda, and also focusing specifically on like the cultural that exists there. So languages that are spoken, um, day-to-day practices that are accepted or not accepted. And I think that's just very important. Um, as both Rachel and Kathy have mentioned, you know, we often go in thinking or we have preconceived notions of what Africa is, but also um, the Ugandan people don't really know us. They look at us and see someone who's foreign. To be able to do that research effectively, you need to show them that you care. You're there to listen um, and you're there to respect their traditional ways. So having that knowledge on what language do they speak? What are some common phrases that we can use to say hi or something? Um, really helps them also have um, confidence in us or be able to trust us um, to work together. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, my follow-up question to that is, um, in the program, do you have to uh, pick an issue yourselves or are you tasked with an, with an issue to work with when you get to the practicum? Um, so in terms of practicum placements, how that worked was, I think, roughly in about January, I want to say, um, we submitted um, a cover letter and a resume as well as another a document declaring which organizations we wanted to work with not organizations, but I guess placements areas um, under uh, different categories. And so we ranked each one and then that was submitted to our practicum um, coordinator. And then from there, he, he would go on to choose based on how we were as people and uh, just our choices. 
I think that's actually also a really good question because um, although we got to choose the general area that we were interested in, I think we all chose maternal health. Um, it really isn't about that. When you work in global health, it's about what do they need. Um, so what started off as our interest in maternal health, we went in and also realized was, you know, this is so interconnected with nutritional health. So it's really important to really um have what you want to be there to do, but then also realize what they need um, and really working together in that area. I guess from like a more, uh, just to, for like the context of the how the practicum works, Alyssa mentioned that we have like a matching system. So then it really depends on the site that you go to. So for us, the previous cohort actually did a study on maternal health and so we were hoping to kind of bounce off their study and to continue with their work um, but then for I think the research that they collected was very preliminary and so when we were trying to go in with some kind of implementation it was hard to cater towards maternal health because it's such a like a deep-seated and long-term problem and us being there for two months would just it, it was very difficult to achieve but then for some of our other peers uh, they didn't really have like a project go into it. I think they went in there and then like Vishva said, they looked at where the gaps are and then filled in their expertise there. So it really depends on um, like the site itself and your own goals and how you interact or communicate your needs with the with the host uh, in Uganda. That's really interesting. And my next question, because I'm coming from a discipline where that's I've not heard the term before. So I'm wondering if you can deconstruct the term maternal health uh, for me. What does it mean? What what's associated with it? And then maybe go into your research and how that applied to your Ugandan study. Yeah, so very generally, maternal health refers to the health of um, pregnant people um, and also um, mothers um, or people with children. What that really encompasses or a key global health indicator is maternal mortality and also under five mortality. Both of those can be used to really judge a healthcare system um, and a country's overall population health. So considering those two indicators, focusing on maternal health, which is, again, the health of the pregnant person and new mothers, it's extremely important to make sure that at that foundational level, um, both of those individuals are healthy because that's ultimately what creates a healthy population and healthy generation. And then just going into how our research was focused on maternal health, um, we've mentioned the term obstructed labor before, but just to deconstruct that a little bit, they were finding that in this one particular parish, the Marema parish, they were having um, exceedingly high rates of obstructed labor where um, women had smaller pelvis sizes and their fetus would have difficulties uh, during labor and delivery, which led to an increased need for C-sections. But given the location that this parish was in, it's in a very remote area, very far, far from the hospitals. So it's difficult for the women to get the um, C-sections that they would need. So this relates then to um, like a higher mater maternal mortality rate, as Vishva has mentioned. Uh, so when we looked into obstructed labor and some of the causes, there are some genetic causes, but also a lot of uh, nutritional deficits that can contribute to this smaller pelvis size among women. 
Um, and then upon some further research and just speaking with the community members, um, healthcare workers, traditional birth attendants, we learned that there's a lot of cultural reasons as to why these women might be developing smaller pelvis sizes, uh, just with the food that they're eating, um, their access to food, agricultural issues, uh, and then also just cultural issues too and cultural norms of feeding the boys more of the protein where, uh, so that they can work for the farms and, and contribute more uh, to the family income that way. And then they would neglect to feed some of the girls when they're growing up. So that can contribute to the small pelvis sizes that we're seeing. Could you speak about the classroom to placement uh, transition and, you know, the information that you get from in the classroom is very different from uh, what you get at placement, right? That was quite a gap to encounter when we first got there because we had a particular class called, it was, it had to do with health innovations. So we were given case studies. And so we would read about cases very similar to the situation we found ourselves in and found this community in. And on paper, it seems so easy to fix and everything just works. And there's no regard for money and resources and anything of that sort. Um, so actually being on the ground and having to coordinate all of these resources and time to speak to these people and actually comprehend the situation um, was increasingly difficult. And we really struggled in the first little while because I know when we first got there, we were really, I was really intent, I'll say, um, to have an agricultural intervention, but that just wasn't possible due to time restraints. Um, because I know a lot of the people that we did speak to expressed a lot of um, difficulties in um, actually getting proper nutrition just due to agricultural issues surrounding climate change and just their own personal funds. They just were unable to feed themselves properly. And so that was one of the biggest issues that we ran into. So we ended up doing the educational based one because that seemed a good place to start. And hopefully that um, we can keep progressing with this intervention and go forward with it as with the coming cohorts. Yeah, and for me, I think one of the biggest transitions from classroom to um, practicum was also just small things. Like um, the village that we worked in was, I'd say, I don't know, 100 kilometers, maybe less than from the city we lived in. But it took us three to four hours to get there because of the road infrastructure. Um, and within the country, that's something that has been a challenge, but it's not something I realized was, you know, such a big issue until we got there. Um, and things also like refrigeration, um, if we wanted to, if they wanted to really store their food in this village, they need access to electricity, but then they also need refrigerators. Um, and those things were just not accessible there. Um, and although we had learned about the challenges that they faced, you know, being there in person, experiencing, you know, that drive or even being there and seeing that there is no um, full infrastructure for electricity, um, it really puts into place the, um, how complex this issue really is, which it often doesn't seem to be the case when you just read a case study. I think one of the biggest sh like shift for me was uh, one of the misconceptions we have about Africa is that they don't have enough food, so all of their children are starving it's like the typical poster that you would see whenever we talk about 
um, sub-Saharan Africa. But when we went there, we realized that they there's quite a lot of like food is very diverse. In fact, we ha we really miss the fruits there, for example, and that's one of the um, food categories that is lacking in their nutrition. And so it wasn't so much as Africa doesn't have food, which is also a sentiment that's uh, echoed by a lot of the um, the professionals there. It's not that Africa has food. There's just a gap in understanding of what kind of foods to eat. And that's another reason why we chose to go with a educational program. But when we were in school, just to speak on the transition a little bit, um, we talked about like lack of refrigeration, the transportation time, but we never really explored how food um, or how these crops exist in Africa. Like we don't know how agri we didn't know how agriculture worked there. We didn't know what kind of foods they eat. We knew their national dish, which is like a steamed banana. They call it matoke, and that's about it. And then when we went there, we realized that there's a lot of options. Um, granted, the economics of food is a challenge there, and the conversation is a lot more nuanced than just having different foods available, but there are these foods there, and it was just a matter of like bridging um, the, a diet plan for some of these villagers so that they're not just only intaking carbs. The complexity of the situation is something I'm I'm going to ask you all on, because Alyssa spoke about the situation in Uganda, and Rachel mentioned, um, with regards to nutrition, the cultural complexities um, related to pelvic sizes. And it seemed each of you have a different approach to the situation, so to speak, whether that be agricultural, um, a cultural approach, or infrastructural. So my question is, can each of you speak to those specific points that you mentioned a little more and how that relates to the maternal health of Uganda, your experience and your work with nutrition. I know that's a big, big question. That's really unique in having four people here, I think, and doing this research. The initial visit that we did with the community members um, a lot, we met with the village health team workers. And so just to break that down a little bit, the healthcare system in the village. Um, so they have village health team workers. And so these are the people that they'll go to. It's a voluntary position. Um, but they're chosen by the community and um, they're kind of like the pre preliminary like healthcare worker that you'll visit should something go wrong. Um, so we got to meet with them and they also are farmers in addition to being the village health team workers. And so a lot of them expressed that they had, they, that their crops were not doing as well as they would have hoped and they weren't making, they weren't yielding enough produce and they weren't making enough money out of it and they were expressing that there were issues in terms of um, the soil quality was poor and um, because of climate change and just the dry season itself um, they weren't getting enough water to water all of their crops and they had no irrigation systems in the area and they had like lots of land to water so they would just solely rely on rain during these seasons and it doesn't rain a lot during the dry season in Uganda and it's becoming that window of dry season is growing in length because of climate change. I brought it up but we all worked on it together to look into um, the weather resistant seeds. We looked into those. Um, there was a seed bank um, locally that sold them and so basically these seeds will grow under any circumstances, under any conditions and it's been really helpful in places like Kenya 
So um, we wanted to look into something like that, but just time and the resources to do so, it got away from us. And we just found that it was going outside of our scope. Um, another thing, which is like very, very ideal and or, or, I guess idealistic um, would have been to create an irrigation system and distribute that to the village. But again, that was way out of our scope and it costs the resources just wouldn't have been possible, but that's something we would have liked to have done. Yeah, I can elaborate a little bit more into the cultural aspects. Um, so this definitely took a lot of relationship building with the community members, the traditional birth attendants, just to gain their trust and uh, make sure that they felt comfortable explaining these situations to us. Um, but some of the cultural issues that were faced um, was there's this specific type of fish called mukene, uh, and it is very high in protein and it's relatively cheap compared to other protein sources. So it is something that um, healthcare workers can have encouraged um, among the population and among the rural community that we were working with. However, after speaking with them, we realized that there were some taboos associated with eating that specific type of fish. It was associated with a lower socioeconomic status. It's something that they tend to feed their livestock with and not necessarily something that they themselves would want to eat. So just looking into those barriers is really, really important when developing an intervention. Um, and yeah, some of the other cultural barriers as well, like I mentioned previously, um, was just the prioritizing the protein sources for the boys instead of the girls. And these are very deep rooted uh, cultural factors. So not necessarily something that we thought that we could change. We're not here to necessarily change um, culture or the taboo. Um, we're, we were there to try to engage the community um, and educate them. Uh, so again, not something that we necessarily focused on when it came to our education intervention, um, but it's just very important, I think, to be cognizant of those cultural barriers and just the reasons as to why certain foods might not be feasible for them to incorporate into their diet. Um, and then speaking a little bit about infrastructure, um, I see that kind of in two different ways. So I spoke about the road infrastructure there. Um, and when we asked uh, the community members, how do you get to the hospital? Um, we actually learned that people, while basically being in labor, are on motorcycles and have to be transported like over two hours to sometimes the nearest facility that has an operating theater to get a C-section. And then again, things like road infrastructure um, and access to transportation are, are large um, national issues that we personally cannot um, take too much of a stance on within two months or any stance really. Um, and then the second side of infrastructure is the healthcare infrastructure itself. Um, so we mentioned that the lowest level of the healthcare system is a village health team worker. Then you go up levels to like uh, healthcare center two, which is a small clinic, all the way up to the national referral hospital. Um, but a nutritionist is only available to you at a regional referral hospital. So about four or five levels up and about um, like a hundred kilometers away, but three or four hours away. So really trying one thing that we want to do is bridge that um, infrastructure gap in the healthcare system to really have that knowledge that you get from that nutritionist 
available at the village health level um, and you know some ways that has been bridged in the past for like HIV care and things like that is the use of mobile technology and um, so most people do have some sort of uh, mobile phone or even access to SMS and um, so really maybe um, connecting those village health team members to a nutritionist to provide recipes, check-ins, um, or anything like that to treat malnutrition. I think to uh, quickly paint a picture about the Ugandan healthcare system, because we mentioned it a lot, is that it's very different from Canada. So there is a bunch of different levels. However, these levels are not necessarily completely synonymous with what we see in Canada, simply because of the resources available. So village health teams, which is the lowest level, as um, both Alyssa and Visha has mentioned, they're volunteer positions. And they, while they understand their community health really well, they might not necessarily have like a great depth in um, health. So they're not they're not doctors. They never um, they ne- they might not have had any medical training. It really depends on the village in those situations. So there's no standardization of training. And then at these healthcare level two clinics, um, there again, there's no doctors that has went to training. Sometimes they might know a little bit more on health or they've uh, gone to training supported by the government to provide treatment or to provide consultations. But I, if I remember correctly, it's at healthcare center threes or fours where there are uh, certified doctors and infrastructure to help. So even though there are these community-based people available to these villagers, it, it can be hard to get the necessary treatment that they, or it, it will be hard to get the um, treatment that they need because of all of these different types of restrictions. But yeah, just to kind of give an idea of how it looks like. Um, and I think earlier I spoke on the education aspect of it. And essentially uh, where we were coming in from there is that it is the simplest, it is also the cheapest. And we also did notice that there was a gap in knowledge when it came to nutrition. So we found out by doing a survey, um, essentially asking them about food groups, portion sizing, and so on and so forth. And majority of the village members would confuse the different types of food and food groups and we always use local locally available foods because there's no point in asking about what you think about um i don't know like poutine when they don't have poutine there so we try Mm -hmm. to be as local as possible asking them what kind of fruits vegetables uh, plants meats they have in the village and what they eat and what they think these food which groups these food belong to and then when we collected the data from the survey, we noticed that there was a discrepancy. For example, a lot of uh, a lot of carbs were described as protein, and a lot of vegetables were they were very conflicting. And then we also found out that they have a huge carb-based diet. I, I want to say like more than two thirds of their diet is just carbs. So there's a lot of proteins and a lot of vitamins that are lacking. And so we thought if they understood that there needs to be a little bit more diversity in the types of food that they eat, they could get all of those nutrients that are necessary to to improve their health. Because um, at the end of the day, like a huge part of health is our diet and is our lifestyle. So we were hoping to go in from there, which is both uh, time feasible for us and cost feasible for us. And it will be benefit and beneficial for them in understanding how to source what they have available to them in order to improve their own health.
And that's, that's a really, it's very complex. I think that's what we can take from this. And I'd really, I know Apurva and I both would like to ask you a lot more questions, but I think we're just about out of time. With that, Apurva, do you want to take us out? This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Apurva Desai, and my co-host was Megan Vole. We've been speaking with Alyssa, Rachel, Vishra, and Kathy. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. This episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcast radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on all your favorite podcast apps. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Keep going, Kathy. You go, you go, you go. No, no, you go. Okay. Yeah, I'm getting in. Oh, sorry. Continue. Don't mean to interrupt a poor feather. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. Oh, go ahead, Rachel. Let me start with Alyssa. Sure.